Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood here with my co-host Jason Hammond. Uh, Just a little update here. We're going to change things up with our intro. So rather than sharing something perhaps that we did recently or, uh, you know, some little learnings, we're actually going to do some hot takes at the beginning of the episodes, um, test that out and see how that goes. So Jason's up first on this one. uh, So I'll let him take it from here. All right. So my hot take is plant-based diets are a good option for cyclists. Wow. So, I mean, I think for me, um, just thinking from an evolutionary standpoint and, uh, you know, my background as a PT, right. A lot of, a lot of biology, a lot of chemistry and physics and all that's all the sciences there. I feel like thousands of years of evolution has pointed us in a direction that has animal based proteins. Like I know that, and I know this is a different time, right. That we evolved in where, we were looking more for survival versus uh, perhaps having different ethical things that were weighing on our minds um, as a uh, as a species. But my feeling is that we probably do best because we're evolved to have some uh, animal-based proteins in our diet. And it, I think you can probably do it with plant-based proteins, but it might be more challenging. Um, so I, I understand from an evolutionary perspective that... Um, a lot of the, you know, you can make an argument that a lot of the reasons that humans became humans was because of the introduction of meat into the diet. Uh, but the point that I'm making is, what are the dietary needs of a cyclist, and can those be fulfilled? And but in a plant-based diet, and I think actually that not just that can they be fulfilled, but that it's actually well acquainted to it, because if you look at uh, the demands of cycling, you need a carbohydrate-heavy diet. You need some protein, but not that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you need healthy fats. So the if you look at the main fuel source of maybe like brown rice or pasta or whole wheat bread, and you look at the carbohydrate to protein ratio, it's like perfect uh, in terms of, you know, getting if you, you know, if you say that I need like 125 grams of protein as a cyclist and I'm eating 3,500 calories a day that's like 10 to 15% of your diet. Mm-hmm. And for brown rice, for pasta, for these things, it's about uh, 10 to 15% of the calories in those foods mm-hmm. come from protein. So that ratio is perfect. It's very carb heavy. As, as a diet as a whole, a lot of vegetables, a lot of grains, it's gonna get you all the carbs you need so you're full on glycogen. You're gonna get enough protein. It just seems like it works. Like it, it's, you know, the argument, the hot take is it can work. And it could even be a good idea if, if you know, maybe you have a more Western diet that doesn't get you enough carbohydrates. Changing to something that's more plant-based could get you those carbs. Fair, fair enough. That's the hot take. And I, I, mean, I think the disclaimer, right, is there may be some supplementation um, yeah, so, required. I mean, there's, and that's a, yeah, that, that's know, a rabbit hole a, we're going to go down. So, and, and not even from like an ethics perspective or anything like that. Purely performance, I can understand why people who are plant-based have been successful in endurance athletics and cycling specifically because if you look at at what a cyclist needs nutritionally and you look at what a plant-based diet provides it matches up pretty closely yeah so you're saying you're you're hitting the macronutrients you're hitting the right pretty much light you know right on just and like by accident almost like mm -hmm. it just happens that the diet matches up really well right and probably it's part of it is you're just consuming so many darn calories right yeah and getting that rich carbohydrate and if you do it through uh, whole grains, then you're ending up with a pretty decent protein content yep. there. And then also you don't get sugar spikes because it's a complex carb. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, how many people have, have stopped listening to the podcast because one of us is a, you know, I'm, I'm not like a plant-based advocate necessarily, but I can see why some people are successful with it. That's a hot take. Fair, fair enough. So shall we get into, uh, yeah. So we have two topics today, Todd, uh, you're going to go first. Yeah, so I just want to talk a little bit about blood flow restriction training. I think we've talked a lot about different ways to train and different uh, elements that you can add to your training. I mean, we talked about altitude on a prior episode. We talked about resistance training. And blood flow resistance, blood flow restriction training is something that you could add to your other training modalities. So you could add to your regular aerobic-based cycling or potentially add to your strength-based training. Um, And then the question becomes, well, We'll talk about like what is it, what is it all about, uh, what are the benefits of of doing it, and then I think the question for me is like, can we use this to optimize our training, 
and I'll, I'll go into that a little bit and we can discuss and figure out if it's actually worthwhile to add blood flow restriction training into your regularly planned training. So big picture, um, the idea, as I said before, is, is something you're going to add to augment your regularly planned resistance or aerobic exercise. You may modify your training a little bit. So this is like fasted riding uh, in a previous episode. Yeah, it's something that you're adding to your training rather than, right, you were, you were going to go for that train ride, now you're just going fasted. This is, you're doing some resistance training perhaps, but with these very specific blood flow restriction cuffs on your legs. Okay. Um, and so, big picture, so what is this? It's you're, you're putting on a cuff, you're pumping it up, and you're restricting the blood flow. It's actually more about like the blood flow out. Uh, the venous return is what you're restricting. And what happens here is it's going to increase the metabolic stress. So it really has a very localized effect on this on the cells of the muscles that are working and you've restricted that flow. So my initial reaction is less blood, less oxygen. So you're more you're going to use anaerobic work more. Is that correct? So the the in is still going. The the blood that's coming pumped out of the heart is getting there. It's okay. you're not clearing out the the waste products, you're not clearing out the metabolites. Because okay. the venous blood that's trying to return that has all the used product can't be pumped out because of the the cuff that's restricting it. Okay. Does that that make sense? Yes. All right. So that's the idea. And so you imagine like you have more lactate accumulation locally, right, at that tissue. So that maybe helps with your lactate buffer and maybe helps with those enzymes. Um, you definitely do see with this training methodology increased neuromuscular fatigue, which we believe does lead to increased growth hormone secretion later on. Um, at the highest level, when you look across the big broad studies, you do see for the same training protocol is usually how they're comparing this, right? It's okay, you're gonna do whatever, three sets of 10 of this protocol, you're gonna do this lift, and then one group's gonna be just standard and the other group's gonna use blood flow restriction, okay? And what you're tending to see is for the same protocol, increases in muscle hypertrophy, and increases in strength gain uh, across the studies. Now, a lot of the studies I looked at were not like super fit individuals. Um, a lot of times like untrained individuals, right? So uh, how much this applies to cyclists? This is up for debate, right? And, how and, much... and uh, which cyclists want uh, greater hypertrophy as well? Right, and you know, like we talked about before, what, what if we stretch before we do our blood flow restriction training? Does that reduce the hypertrophy effect? Yeah, and we know that um, these studies may work independently, but together uh, the effects may be more confounding. Right, I think that's sort of the interesting um, questions that I think we, we want to ask, right, is if I'm going to add something to my training, is there actually going to be additional value on top of what I was already going to do? Mm -hmm. So um, strength studies, I think that's pretty... It's pretty well established, increased hypertrophy, increased strength for, for the same amount of training. Um, the other studies, they've also looked at this, like sometimes in elderly populations uh, where maybe they're not as able to do strength training or they have limited capacity to do strength training and they see improvements, right? So it's like, okay, you did less volume, but you got the improvement of doing a greater volume of training. Yeah, or people who only want to go to the gym once a week and... Um... But, you know, their coaches, maybe you should go two or three times a week and they only have time for once a week. This could be beneficial. That's and that's what I'm thinking. I think uh, the thing I'm thinking about is so you only have this limited period of time in your training protocol, perhaps in your off season where you're going to go and you're going to do a bunch of lifting. And would it be beneficial? And could you make more of that lifting time by adding this modality to your training sessions? So that's that's out there. I'll, I'll circle back to this in a little bit. Okay. Um, I want to touch a little bit on what are the aerobic effects when you do blood flow restriction training. So again, primarily the studies that I, I looked at um, look at sort of untrained individuals. Uh, it's like usually VO2 maxes in the 40 range. Uh, I was able to find one that looked at cyclists. It was about uh, 20 in the sample. And the VO2 max in, average in this study was... Uh, 60. So, you know, respectably trained cyclists uh, mm -hmm. in this in this study. And from what I could ascertain, it looked like they did some intervals that were like 30 seconds at intensity and then a few minutes of rest period. And they repeated this several times um, for, for a course of weeks. And then they measured. And this, this particular group saw an increase of 5% VO2 max relative to their peers. 
so like relative to themselves right over time but also the peers in the control group didn't have any change in vo2 max they did the same exercises just no um, yeah they did the same training protocol um, was all aerobic cycling Uh, was it a five percent increase in vo2 max or a five percent increase as opposed to their counterparts nope well it was five well five percent increase in vo2 max but if they're both the same at baseline Okay. The so, counterparts were no delta, no change. Okay. And that, then that they the were. Question. So yeah. Okay. So there's like a relative five percent gain in performance. Yeah. Right. So I, I guess what you're getting at is like, did the control group improve five percent and the um, experimental group improve ten percent? Yeah. Or and, um, or was the difference between the two groups only five? Like the, the right, difference right, in right. increase is only five percent. Then that's right, not right, right, right. So no, no, it is a relative change in VO2 max of five percent. Okay. I mean, that's uh, like a couple points. That's right. Uh, that's, that's, that's right. Well, from sixty, right? You're talking about sixty as a starting point for this yeah. group. So you're talking about three, basically. Yeah, which is. Um, I mean, I mean, for me, we're looking at a five or six point increase over like four months would be like a huge number so right. so if you get that you in get the, halfway there and, in a number of weeks by yeah. putting some cuffs on your leg and and doing your your workouts or not like this is not even a particularly vigorous workout which is one of the um arguments in favor of this so like you don't have to do as vigorous of a workout to get the same performance benefits okay so i, I think there's some really interesting stuff going on here um so other other stuff that's interesting uh, that they've seen in these studies and reported out on um there's no no change in the substrate use for energy you know metabolism right it doesn't shift your fat or carbohydrate balance it doesn't make you use more creatine phosphate there's not, not more uh, glycolysis happening it's the same where you when you do the same level of exercise intensity normal versus using blood flow restriction it doesn't change the substrate use it does lead to an increase of lactate concentration locally not not centrally, but just locally, which makes which sense. Makes right? sense yeah. It's not, it's not clearing out. So of course it's going to be there. Um, that's really, is it, um, is it more painful because you have that increased? So that's interesting, right? They say moderately, at least in what I've seen right? when they ask people about that, okay. uh, it's, it's moderate, but not like, not a huge change. I mean, I think there's probably some, um, adjustment period when having that cuff on there. Right? It's like, it's like when you go to the doctor and get your blood pressure taken. Okay. So it's like they usually the protocol is around 130 millimeters of mercury. So it's Mm -hmm. like probably not as intense as the blood pressure cuff being all the way on. Like that goes much higher, probably like 160, 180, depending on what your blood pressure is. Um, But so like 130. Yeah. So it's so it's on, but it's not. But in terms of like rate of perceived effort, um, um, did you get have any information about that? I'm glad you asked. That was the next thing. So yes, RPE goes up. Um, Again, for relative level of work, right? The RP is going to be higher when you're doing blood flow restriction training. Your respiration rate is going to be higher. Your heart rate is going to be higher. Um, and then what's interesting is when they look at um, neuromuscular fatigue, which they look at by doing a, an isometric test, uh, that, that's increased after those efforts with blood flow restriction relative to um, the normal condition. Okay. And I, I, I would hypothesize it's probably in part related to the buildup of uh, waste product because right? i think we understand that muscles are less able to contract with force when there's the present of presence of acid in the environment so you can mm-hmm. imagine if you start to build up some accumulate some lactate locally that that would influence and reduce the the force producing capacity um, and then one of the suggestions in one of the studies that i read was actually maybe we don't do this maybe we do our interval whatever it is, whether it's VO2 max or or sweet spot or what have you, um, in the normal fashion, so we can achieve our normal power numbers. But then during our recovery period, we actually do the blood flow restriction training, which is super interesting. Um, It was only, it was just like a suggestion by the authors. They didn't really go into, to my understanding, that was a pretty recent paper and nobody's actually studied this. But that was sort of an interesting thought. Like, wow, so what if we did our training this way? And then we did our recovery. So basically making the recovery part harder and maybe maybe forcing ourselves to deal with that lactate accumulation better. So so one workout that I do is um, you do two minutes at your VO2 max and then Mm -hmm. you do like six or eight minutes at threshold. Mm -hmm. And the idea is um, you're teaching your body to shuttle the lactate better because you're forcing yourself to do threshold in a high lactate environment already. Mm -hmm. So this seems very similar. um, The 
cuffing during the recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows you to still teach your body to re- to remove the waste at a high level during, mm-hmm. and then afterwards you're almost teaching it. You know, during your rest, can we be even better? And that's something that track cyclists, um, if you can do a big monster attack, and then 30 seconds later you can do another one, and your opponents can't do it. You know, they need to wait a little bit longer for their legs to feel good again. It's a huge advantage. Um, so it seems like the restriction during recovery could be useful for an athlete like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I think about mountain biking too, right? Like if you look at mountain biking power files, like the delta between your average power and your normalized power is quite large sometimes, mm-hmm. right? It's very, you know, it's very erratic as far as the power that you're putting down. So I think that's the sort of thing where it's like, yeah, you need to be able to recover quickly. You need to be able to show that lactate um, during these brief breaks and then you know hit it again to go up a steep climb or to you know negotiate some technical features so or i mean crit riding right is a very similar um, environment yeah. sometimes right on off on off and being able to recover and then yeah to get the lactate out while you're resting is uh, incredibly important so this you know maybe this has some application mm. here i think this uh the whole blood flow restriction is interesting because it's almost um you know, goes back to what we talked about before, which is like, you know, how can we hurt ourselves as much as possible to get the most adaptation? Mm-hmm. Um, and this seems like a, a way for us to sort of hurt ourselves more. Um, and, you know, part of hurting yourself, like, uh, what was the one study where um, people were doing Tabata workouts, which is like 4020s or, or was it 2010s? 2010s, I think. 2010s yeah. for four minutes. Um, and they did it for like 10 weeks straight and they had like a really, really good looking VO2 max curve. And they asked the volunteers if they wanted to keep going and every single one of them said no. Um, and the scientist was like, I would have liked to see, you know, how long the, um, the curve stayed. Right. How, how much improvement you could get from doing that. And so that's an example of uh, the athletes. You need to remember the athletes are human and eventually they can't just keep going harder. Um, and I know for myself, there's a difference between a race where you turn off the pain receptors and training where you can fight through a lot of stuff. And it's just so many certain number of training efforts in a row, you just can't uh, continue to do it. So at a certain point, you start to look at how can we reduce the pain and get the same stimulus um, so that, you know, the athlete doesn't have to be quite as mentally tough for these big workouts. And so this seems like an option for that. Yeah, and I, mean, I think the way I'm I'm thinking about this a little bit is I don't know if you're you played like video games much, but uh, you know I think about all these sports video games, right? And you could always like create your own player, and they always had attributes, right? From like zero to a hundred, whether it was like speed or agility or mm-hmm. vertical leap or whatever, right? And I sort of think about you know our performance in in this, this realm of like okay, so zero is like the system doesn't work at all, and a hundred is not necessarily like the maximum of human potential, but like the maximum of my genetically determined potential, right? Like, okay. I, I have some, you know, like genetically determined VO2 max, right? Like no matter how hard I train, like I can optimize it to a point and, and that is that is that, right? Like, and so like there's obviously components of that, right? Like there's like how big will my heart get and how big, how strong can my heart muscle become? Um, what about my, you know, vascular adaptations? What about uh, my cellular level adaptations? So, mm-hmm. you know, if I, if I th- when I think about this, I'm like, okay, so if there's all these things, there's, let's say like cardiovascular adaptations, right? So like what happens to my heart and my lungs? And that can be on a span of zero to a hundred. And there's cellular level adaptations. So how many mitochondria, how efficient are those mitochondria, those sorts of things. Um, there's muscular level adaptations, right? Like how many, like how large are my muscles, right? And yeah. obviously, depending on your realm of cycling, there's a, a point where you maybe don't want your muscles to be any larger. Right? Or like or even you... um, Forsterman, his, you know, he has mobility issues because his muscles are so big. So right. when, when does it become no longer being yeah, valuable? Is it, yeah, and so then like, I think also like neural, right? And of course, psychology as well, but like, like is the nervous system optimized, right? Is it sending the signals down or recruiting those muscles? And you know, if you if you look across all those domains, right, like our peak performance comes when all those things are working as close to their maximum capacity as possible. And part of that's we do right through our training, thinking about, you know, how do I set it up to peak for that race? that's really important for me. Right. And yeah. but so then I think about this and like, 
can we take this blood trail restriction training? Can we take uh, altitude training? Can we take our specific interval training, our weight training, and put all those pieces together of this puzzle? And like, can we use these other things, like, like blood flow restriction training, to get us closer to that 100%, right? Like, so as I suggested, could we use blood flow restriction training during our off season when we're doing resistance training to optimize and get more of our resistance training? Or if we continue to do resistance training during our season, can we do less and create less fatigue, but still get the same adaptation? Um, Were there any studies on um, next day fatigue or? Not, not that I saw. Um, like, but usually the sort of the, the rationale, right, is, you know, do, do more with less, right, is kind of the theme. Like, yeah. you know, a lot of the studies are saying like, well, you know, in a population that can't tolerate high intensity exercise, do lower intensity exercise, but get the benefits of high intensity exercise. Okay. Um, that's like, like the rehab population, right, or the, the elderly population there. So, you know, if you, I think that probably extrapolates a bit towards the cycling population, but I imagine as you get to high levels of performance, you probably see less and less improvement. Although, like again, in the studies that I looked at, the cyclists, the trained cyclists with the 60 starting VO2 max got a 5% gain. And some of the folks with a 40 starting VO2 max were, you know, seven to 9% gains. So like, yes, like, yes, I would love to have a, a 9% gain at 60 VO2 max. That'd be phenomenal. But five's pretty darn good, right? I mean, it, theoretically, I would imagine that those cyclists are closer to their ceiling. Yeah. Right? Um, so. And it's like a decay. There's a, uh, a trailing a, uh, yeah. off as you get closer. Right, right. It, it, it takes more and more to get that last little bit, mm-hmm. whatever, last couple percent, um, as opposed to like the first 10%. Is, yeah. yeah. So um, tell me a little bit more about, um, you know, is there a Google search that I can... Um, type in that will give me a couple products that will do this. Do these have to be trainer workouts? Um, do I need to be hooked up to a machine? Well, so you got to have something that's going to apply the pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're probably gonna have to do it on the trainer. Okay. I don't think you're gonna. I mean, like not. Uh, you, you can't go for a ride with rubber bands around your thighs, or. Yeah, it's probably not gonna do it. I mean, I think. Okay. You know, just conceptually, right? Like you're restricting the blood that's going to your thighs, so you probably want to do it in a controlled environment. Ah, just go, uh, go hit old LaHonda with uh, two giant rubber bands around yeah, your thighs. To uh, you know, go see a physical therapist and get two like the stiffest stair bands and tie them really tight. Yeah, no, that's a, it's probably a terrible idea. You want to have it, you know, regulated, right? Because otherwise, mm-hmm. and you want you don't and probably do a, it. a nice big red button in case something goes wrong. Right, and yeah, basically an eject, and you you don't want to you want to do it for a controlled period of time too. Right, you don't want to be cutting blood flow off to your mm-hmm. legs indefinitely. This is not a this is not a good thing. Yeah, right. I mean, you're basically like at a certain point you know telling your muscles to die right like yeah we're not supplying blood so like yeah well you're not we're not getting rid of waste products yeah yeah Um, so so okay so it's on a trainer um in a laboratory well well all the studies are right but like you know in your garage you could do it at your house yeah um and are there companies that offer products or there there is all sorts of stuff out there um okay. you know it, it originated i believe in japan right and so there's a lot of japanese products but there are american companies that make these things you know it's okay. probably it would probably be best to be advised by someone at first right like a, a coach or a, you know a trusted advisor um, yeah. like I, I probably wouldn't advise like hey just go get this thing and strap it on your legs as tight as you can and and see see how it goes for you it's mm-hmm. probably more of a Go speak with somebody who's knowledgeable in blood flow restriction training. Set yourself up a protocol, and then you can go from there. And it's it's not inexpensive, right? Like you know, you're talking about a, a significant investment. Yeah. Um, well, how significant? Uh, just thinking in terms of like altitude tent, or um, even dietary changes, or the cost of coaching. Um, probably in that range, right? Like, okay. I mean you know, hundreds to, you know, I think for fancy ones, thousands. Okay. So I wonder, <laughs> it sounds like either, um, someone who has not a lot of time, plenty of money or someone who's really looking for that peak performance. Most likely. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. I think for most people, this is probably something that's at the edge, right? Like you're, you've already pushed a lot of the, the buttons or you're just like, whatever, like really into the tech. Yeah. 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 
So that's pretty cool. I think that um, I think I need to figure out an excuse not to get into blood flow restriction because uh, I could see well I could see the benefits for my riding specifically. Um, I just wonder if you have to make sure that you're getting rid of the right limiter. I yes. Think. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing, right? Like, if you're, I can imagine if the limitation for you is like at the cellular level, right, at the local level versus at the systemic level, then this seems like the right thing. Like, you're having like clearing lactate at the cellular level is an issue. This seems like the right thing to do, as opposed yeah. to like, I don't know, you, your hematocrit is low. This does not seem like the right thing to do. Yeah, so that's so interesting. Uh, I remember specifically watching one of Phil Guyman's videos and uh he had the audio on it was like one of the it was just a recording of his kom and it mm -hmm. was like a 16 or 17 minute video so it was like a 20 minute effort that he was basically doing and he was breathing so heavily mm -hmm. um, and that's all you could hear was it, it, like this was one of his early videos when there was no music and all you could hear was just <sighs> and i thought about my 20 minute efforts i don't breathe that hard um and that was almost concerning of of like Look at how deep he can go, and it's a 20-minute effort. Um, and that just shows that professional cyclists are able to get so close to their VO2 max with their threshold, which is incredibly impressive. But I think for him, um, I think that the cellular lactate shuttling is likely a limiter. Um, or like maybe it's just oxygen that he can get into his body as the limiter. Right. Um, like he's, like, he's doing all the, th all the processing pretty well, and there's just if he could get more oxygen in and transfer it into the cells, then he could probably do a little bit more. Yeah. So I wonder, um, I don't know if you can answer this, but how do I know if it's, you know, lactate shuttling is my limiter? I think that's a complicated question to answer, right? I mean, so I think you have to look at a curve of your lactate concentration with your power and how that changes. Right. And there's different curves of that. Mm -hmm. um, right. So but is think, that normally the biggest limiter for people's threshold? It's just lactate shuttling. Matt, yes, that's right. Because your doesn't that sort of define your threshold? Is the, the, the point where you've accumulated so much that you can no longer yeah, balance so it? It's um, your threshold is for an hour. Basically, can your input match your output? Right. Um, and so if you can't shuttle it and process it, then yeah. But so your threshold is also like the aerobic work doesn't have any lactate production yes. and the anaerobic work does. So your threshold is the sum of your aerobic work, your maximum aerobic work, mm -hmm. plus your, the amount of anaerobic work that you can do that you can get rid of that the lactic acid. Yep. So if you improve your lactate shuttling, you're only improving that anaerobic portion of your threshold. True. But you're, so then your, if you improve your aerobic part, then that's going to be like mitochondrial enzymes and some or mitochondrial efficiency on some level. Okay. Um, right. Cause it, it, I guess it could also be oxygen limited, right? Like if you can't possibly take in enough oxygen to yeah. manage the aerobic part, like if you're, let's see, if your type one fibers are still oxygen hungry, but you can't take in enough oxygen to feed them, then you have to do a, you know, anaerobic process because there's no mm -hmm. more oxygen than activate type two fibers. And so I wonder if uh, you could test like, um, wear an oxygen mask with higher oxygen percent um well you'd have to think if that actually would oxygenate your blood better it shouldn't right at sea level at least yeah because right? you're already saturated most of the time so hmm so i mean like you can you can walk through the steps right so oxygen has to come in yeah. and from the from the environment and there has to be sufficient pressure gradient to push it into the blood so if we assume sea level then so so are, but are we limited by like you know our our, our like uh airway diameter or um you know, like if i just if you just pumped in pure oxygen would you ride faster yeah that's the question is like you see these people breathing really heavily mm -hmm. um you know like say you're even doing a five minute effort mm -hmm. and you're like this is literally as fast as i can breathe it's completely autonomous and you know you enter that sort mm -hmm. of like um respiration if you can do that faster or more like ferociously or somehow get more uh, volume of air through your airway so could you go faster you when you're breathing you always there's 
your lungs are not a perfect exchange when you're inhaling and exhaling. So it's not like, um, you know, filling a bucket and emptying a bucket. Like there's, there's always some left over in the lungs. Right? So if I've taken a deep breath and then I exhale, like that's not a perfect, but you, you don't blow everything out. There's some, <laughs> there's some volume that, that remains, right. That didn't necessarily get exchanged. So it's like, there's always some dead space and some oxygen that's left okay. and carbon dioxide too. Right. Um, so, I don't know that you could necessarily improve that too, too much. Like, I don't, I don't think when you're breathing really, really hard that you're going to maybe a little bit, but I I don't think that's where you're really going to move the needle on performance. Yeah. So aerobically, we're more limited by the red blood cell count, um, hematocrit levels. Okay. So, so let's just walk through it. Right. So air comes in, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Still with sea levels. So we're like maximally saturating our red blood cells. Um, so if we have a good red blood cell count that's healthy and has not turned our, you know, blood very viscous, okay. um, so right, like <laughs> fifty some is probably the highest that's gonna get. Yeah. So get if you're to... over low fifties, you're you got sludge in your veins. Is that what you're saying? Um, well, I mean, you know, we we did have that era right in cycling where people mm-hmm. were taking a lot of EPO and people did mysteriously die. Um, yep. that were other, you know, otherwise healthy appearing individuals with crazy high hematocrit levels. Yeah. So, you know, so that aside, so if your hematocrit is reasonable and we, we can check this, right, you could do a blood test or a blood draw and, and determine that, um, it has to go now into your peripheral tissues, into your muscles. So once it gets there, the question is, can your mitochondria handle it and can they produce energy that's keeps up with the power demand that you're, you know, that you need to produce. Okay. Um, so now I think this is where you start to see the first, well, the cellular level point of breakdown, right? If you're asking more power than your type one muscle fibers and mitochondria can manage with the oxygen available. Now we have a breakdown, right? And now this starts to determine a threshold. Okay. And so then that, Right, so this is a point where, I mean, of course, it could have broken down at any other point, right? Like it could have broken down because you're at, on Mount Everest and you're at, you know, 27,000 feet and there's yeah. not sufficient oxygen coming in. Well, not that's on the oxygen concentration. It's the pressure yeah. to allow the, the um, gradient across the lung. So, you know, I think it, all those points, so I think it's now breaking down and what's happening at the cellular. Is it that there's not sufficient enzyme activity to, um, you know, keep up with the demands in an aerobic fashion? Is it that there's not, the number of mitochondria is too low in, mm-hmm. in the muscle cell? Is it that the, you know, there's insufficient type one muscle? And that, that just may be like, you're the sprinter type of person, right? And you're more type two. So you just don't have very many type one muscle fibers to do that type of work. Yeah. And so, you know, like, hey, give me a 10 second spin. I'm totally happy, but ask me to mm-hmm. ride for 20 minutes hard. No, that's just not not what I do. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So type 1 fibers are going to be more apt at uh, the aerobic part. Yeah, those are your, yeah, your aerobic. Yeah. Okay. So then um, that's the aerobic chain, and then you improve that by doing, you know, threshold efforts, basically, or sweet spot efforts. Yep, yep. Um, and then the aerobic anaerobic portion. This is why if you do VO2 max intervals, you can get a bump in your threshold because you're working on the anaerobic portion of your threshold. Um, and so, but, then, but you're also maximally stressing the aerobic. Right? You've sort of by definition yeah. gone to the limit of the aerobic component, and now you're starting to get into the anaerobic. Mm-hmm. So I would argue though that um, you know VO2 max intervals. You normally do about 30 to 40 minutes of um, time under load yes um so you know compared to two hours of sweet spot that's not um, gonna get you nearly the same aerobic stimulus well it's i think it's addressing different parts right of the limiters well so that's what i'm arguing is the vo2 yeah. max intervals are stressing the anaerobic portion and then yep. the sweet spot the aerobic portion so the but the vo2 max you're saying this blood flow restriction we're circling back mm-hmm. is going to contribute to this vo2 max this anaerobic portion um if you feel like you're aerobically limited probably shouldn't be doing blood flow, flow restriction it's probably not going to help as much right uh, that that's that's what i'd hypothesize but i don't think there's good research out there to say one way or another 
I think we're okay. I think we're extrapolating now, right, and saying like, well, if you know, if this, then that is possible. Okay. As opposed to like, yes, there's this study that says, and, and maybe I just haven't seen it yet, which is totally reasonable. Yeah, and on this topic of aerobic versus anaerobic, I think it's important to note that um, a lot of masters riders, especially like crits, are very common for masters riders as opposed to road races, and I think that a lot of them will do more anaerobic work. Um, because of the demands of their particular event, but also because it's easier to see improvements in the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas aerobically, it might take years and years. Um, so you'll see in a lot of masters riders, the anaerobic portion of their threshold contributes significantly more. And their the ability to, um, to withstand high lactate levels is super high in a lot of masters riders because they do a lot of... Um, you know, seven by three minutes, eight by three minutes, or um, whatever, six by four minutes at VO2 max. Uh, so I think that, you know, this falls in line with master's riders, maybe having less time, having family, um, maybe a time-consuming job. This can be a way to get more value, and it benefits the thing that you're working on the most anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's all about finding that fit, right? It's like a fitting fitting your training to your training demand and your, your training time, right? Your availability. Mm-hmm. And can we do this? Can we do this to optimize one way or another, right? Like I think there's probably an argument for, I have unlimited training time and resources. How can I, you know, use this to get like one more percent? Cause if, if you are in that situation, right, where you have unlimited training time and resources, you're probably are looking at, you know, like half a percent is a good improvement, right? Or yeah. 1% is that, that's a big deal, right? That, that, that determines the outcome of a, a meaningful race for you. Yeah. Because I think for many of us, like that 1%, yeah, that's just, I mean, that's the difference between like, uh, eating the right thing for breakfast or even less. Yeah. I mean, like, I think 1% for me is probably like how, how many hours did I sleep last night. Yeah. Or, well, even like half an hour or an hour difference yeah. in sleep. Yeah. Right. Sure. Or like, did I, did I have my coffee before my ride or like, was it like, was it strong or not strong on yeah. that day? Like that's, that's probably 1% <laughs> for me. Um, not necessarily like getting crazy. And then, I mean, honestly, I think there's a lot more to be made and you, you've said this too, right? Like proper training, having a coach, like for most of us, that's where you're going to get a ton of value and be able to see, see big gains. I think a lot of these things that I've talked about, you know, and I think some of them we talked about are like on the fringe, like, yes, it could help you. Yes, it could make an improvement, but really best bang for your buck is like doing the fundamentals right. Yep. Um, and then that's, you know, and then if you've done all the fundamentals right and you're still seeking some higher performance, then, then I think that's when you talk about these things and, and bring them into your, your train. Or, you know, as you point out, if you're, you're doing the fundamentals to the best of your ability, but you have limited time. Um, then you try to do some of these things to augment your training so you can achieve your best performance. Yep. And I think that this performance optimization is a good transition to my topic. Um, And that's my topic is uh, racing and riding in inclement weather. And the reason that I say that this is a good carryover is because um, I want us to start this idea of, uh, you know, what do I do in bad weather? Uh, This is mostly focused on maybe like clothing options, like race strategy, stuff like that. Um, At the end of the day, we want to optimize for the effort, for the event. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, you're going to get big gains from a coach. Yes, you're going to get big gains from uh, doing your workouts every day. But if your choice is between having coffee and not having coffee before your race, I think we're all going to have coffee before our race. Especially if it's cold and wet. Yeah. So... You know, fundamentals aside, there are things that will give you more value. And I think if we're thinking about my example here is I actually raced in a nor'easter a few years ago in um, in upstate New York. Um, it was the Bear Mountain Classic, and I think there were like ten inches of rain that day. I think like it just just poured the whole time, um, and it was a I was chasing Cat One points. It was a cat two only field. I think they had like 23 starters. So we got into the next upgrade bracket and it was a qualifying distance for a road race. So, you know, it was a prime opportunity to get some good points uh, towards my cat one. And I remember this was the first race that I really spent a lot of time focusing on prepping for uh, because it was supposed to rain. Um, 
but but it also taught me how to prep seriously for road races and for races that are uh, big. So, um, you know, using this sort of philosophy of um, how do we get the most value and a lot of, you know, a lot of sports like uh, marathon running or triathlon, most of the work for the event is done before the event. Um, there's not that much to do on race day, except, you know, ride your bike, run, run your run. Uh, whereas cycling, there's a lot, I would argue there's a lot more uh, tactics, there's a lot more work. So I think that learning how to do this stuff before the day, how do I get the most out of the day before the day? And mm -hmm. that includes um, knowing what the weather is going to be like, knowing the wind direction, um, and picking your, um, your clothing options and your bike options and all that stuff to prepare for the expectations of the course and the weather and things like that. So thinking about this, why, Todd, why do we wear skin suits? Why do we wear jerseys? Why don't we wear t-shirts? Oh, I mean, I think it's, it's moisture wicking, right? And well, I guess that goes back to the question of why do we sweat, right? Well, mm. we, we sweat so that we can cool ourselves. And if we have these technical fabrics on, then we will be able to evaporate that water, which actually allows us to cool. Uh, mm. And, and t-shirts don't do that as well. I was also uh, thinking that t-shirts are baggy. Um, okay. Well, that's, that's the one I was looking for. That's, that's fair. Um, so, so go, go on, but yes. The, the point of this is, um, you know, in dry weather, we wear tight fabrics. We want um, the moisture wicking one, but we also want the aerodynamics mm -hmm. to be better. Um, that's another reason why you should try and drop your head a little bit if you can. Um, but in a, in a wet situation, you also want to try to stay dry. Um, and especially a long race where you could get cold because you're out on the bike for three and a half hours. Um, and I think dry in, in rain is sometimes a confounding thing, right? Because depending on your attire, you can stay dry from the rainwater, but you can soak yourself in sweat. Right. So here's where the prep is important. So um, for this event, it was a little bit cold, I think 45 or 50, um, completely wet. And you have to think about, you see these people in these rain jackets riding down the road. They're super billowy. Mm -hmm. blowing everywhere this is not fast this is not a fast jacket um but it'll keep you dry and there's an off there's a balance there mm -hmm. it may also heat you up if it's kind of thick so um one thing that i did was i made sure that my outer layer was a skin suit um interesting okay go on i'm so intrigued now this I, okay this is one of my more proud moments um in terms of prepping for a bike race so I had, a, I had an old skin suit that I used for time trials that I got my mom to stitch a pocket in the back of um, so that I could keep my food in there. Mm -hmm. And underneath of that, I, I was determined to not overwear because the more fabric you have, the more wet fabric you have, the heavier it is, the more contact with your skin mm -hmm. um, that the wet has. So And water is really good at pulling off heat. Yeah, so the I would say for crits or shorter races in the wet, and especially if it's like 70 or over, I would just wear my, um, my normal race kit. Um, anything over 70, just wear, wear whatever you were going to wear in the dry. Um, anything under 70, that's when you start have to, having to really think. Um, and the reason I wore the skin suit on the top is because it would hold all the fabric in tight. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so there would be nothing flapping. Um, and then I wore a rain jacket underneath that and then a base layer underneath that so that the rain jacket wouldn't chafe or mm -hmm. anything. Um, and then it, on my legs, I had chamois butter. I, it was a short sleeve, short leg skin suit, um, long sleeve. And like leg warmers or tight. No, so I had... I, oh, long, was, okay, long sleeve, long sleeve short. Um, got it, got it. Yeah, so that allowed to, the whole rain jacket to stay mm -hmm. under. Um, and the, the sha not chamois butter, Embro. Okay. I had, I had okay. Embro it's on like, my wow, legs. like, wow, butter on your legs. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before, but. I had um, Embro on my legs and a pretty thick caking of that. And that both blocks the wind and the water mm -hmm. um, because it's a oil-based um, liquid. So, um, and then I think that I didn't have anything on my feet. I left them open. And I also had short finger gloves. 
Okay. So this was these those were the the few ways that I tried to resist the overheating because I had three layers on my core. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to know what happened, I ended up uh, the race really slowed down in the last hour, so I ended up getting really cold, um, and I had holes in the armpits of my rain jacket for ventilation, and the water started dripping down through them. So then my whole core was soaked, and I lost a feeling in my fingers. And I had to watch my hand to shift. I had to look at the shifter and like match the because I didn't have any um, feeling in my hand, so I had to watch it push the button. And I ended up uh, because I had such little um, mechanical ability, I ended up uh, pull it, pushing the lever too hard, and I snapped uh, snapped my rear derailleur with five k to go. And in in the final group of eight, and I was probably one of the best sprinters in the group. And it's like five k to go, and you were in the rain for three and a half hours, and. <coughs> Uh, yeah, that was a pretty tough experience. Um, but it taught me a lot about prepping for a race. And, um, recently one of my teammates asked, you know, what do I do about this race? It's an hour and a half race in the wet. And, um, you know, the first thing I said was make sure that you don't wear some big puffy jacket, um, because you're just giving up so much speed. Um, and secondly, if it's not that long, you know, you can definitely grit it out from a um, from a cold perspective. So some things to think about are how intense is the race. Um, I know a lot of races can be defensive, um, although I would say crits normally not so defensive. Um, some road races though can be really a slog for the first few hours. So make sure that if you think it's going to be a slow race that you don't underdress, um, because there's nothing worse than going slow and being cold um so you know and if you do find yourself in that situation maybe you find an excuse to go off the front or spice it up a little bit uh other things to think about are how much is it going to rain do you need clear lenses uh instead of um, tinted lenses because it can get pretty dark so okay so this isn't this is an interesting thing for me right because i think with well road racing a little bit different around the roads a little bit different because it's usually just water that you accumulate mm-hmm. on your on your lenses. But with mountain biking, you also get mud. Um, yeah. So your glasses only last for so long. Uh, so it's like the perfect time if you were capable of wearing goggles, like the motocross-style goggles that have the, the tear-off. Uh, you, you've seen those? Okay. Like, yeah. No, so, like, so the motocross racers, when they have uh, a muddy race, they'll, they have these goggles that have a clear film over the top of them. And like you basically like rip the film off, and then it takes like that layer of mud away, and now you can see again. And, <laughs> Are there like five layers of? Film oh, there's like several. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I know some of the elite downhill mountain bikers have done that in the past, and in, in okay. like really muddy events. Obviously, for like aerobic type longer races, goggles like fog up, so that's not ideal. Yeah. Um, but so how do you manage with your glasses? Because at some point, if it's really raining, you just accumulate enough water on it that it's you're really kind of limited in your vision. Yeah, so one thing that's important, if you're going to buy a set of clears, a separate set of clears, you have to make sure that they, the way they fit your face, they don't fog. Um, and I know some people have bought TT helmets with shields, and they said, wow, I have this cool TT helmet. And it always fogs on them, just the way that they breathe, the way that their face is shaped. So make sure that you match your sunglasses. And um, how do you do that? I'm not sure. I have one pair of clears that I just, you know... They're my clears and I don't mess with them and I know that, that I don't fog, but um, you may have to go to a physical store and um, breathe. Breathe really heavy. Yeah, breathe into them in a weird way or hold your head um, like you would in a race. And do you ever do any, like, any coatings like uh, Rain-X or any of the like? Uh, no, for um, on your body? No, no, for your, your lenses. Oh, um, no, I like I have... You, you, really you have lucky. the magical pair of sunglasses. Yeah, I'm really lucky that I, um, I didn't stop. They were, they were my old race glasses, and when I got new race, like they just work well for me. And I guess they have cutouts. Uh, maybe that's part of the trick. Um, they have cutouts in the shield that maybe are better for ventilation. Um, but the other things to think about are um, your finger. Um, your glove choice. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people will um, say long finger gloves, but the problem with that is most long finger gloves are not waterproof. Mm-hmm. So you end up just having a, a big piece of wet fabric on your hands. Um, and I actually, in collegiate racing, crashed because I lost my bars 
after I hit a pothole that you can't see because it's raining. And my gloves, I had long finger gloves on that slipped off. Um, so one thing from Boy Scouts that they say is your your limbs will not be cold if your core is properly warm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have since opted for mostly short finger gloves and uh, putting an extra layer on my core. Um, so that's my preference, and I, I like the feeling of the levers. I like to be able to feel mm-hmm. them with my hands. But um, the reason not to go with no gloves is because um, if you crash, you can scrape up your palm really badly um, on the road. So I'm definitely a long finger glove person all the time. Like even summer, I have long finger gloves. Okay. Um, I think my my pointer for wet is like yes, I agree with you. They're not waterproof. Latex exam gloves or nitrile exam gloves. Underneath. Underneath. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're just gonna sweat a little bit in there, but um, sometimes if it's if it's cool and you know it's gonna be damp, it might soak through your gloves. Uh, sometimes that can be, and they're so thin, like you you don't really notice that you have an extra layer underneath there. Okay, that's a good tip. Um, and then in terms of the bike, I the other trick that I did that I don't think anyone else in my race did was I used like the thickest mountain bike lube I could find for my chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still think it came off halfway through, but at least I had half a race that the other riders didn't. Um, so maybe, maybe this is going to blow your mind here. Uh, so Dave Wayne's mini time winner of Leadville. Um, okay. remember listening to an interview with him because he said, you know, so hundred mile mountain bike race, like how do you keep your chain lubricated? And his thing was he put grease on his chain. Like, like, uh, like fat, like bacon grease. No, no, no. Like your <laughs> synthetic grease that you put on your bearings, your wheel okay. bearing grease. Solid yeah. grease. Yeah. yeah. So he put that on his chain because he knew that it would last mm-hmm. throughout the duration. There's like, yeah, it's gonna get a little bit dirty, but I'm not, it's, I know it's going to be on there for all hundred yeah. miles. So in a wet condition like that, like now it wreaks havoc on your chain, right. In your drivetrain, like you, you better clean your bike afterwards. Yeah. Um, but if you have really nasty conditions like you need something really heavy it's going to stay on there okay that's a really good tip yeah and um i would even say like if you're doing a crit you just need the demand um you know blue blue demand yeah. mountain biker yeah. it's like whatever your equivalent if, is if conditions are wet you need a wet lubricant if conditions yeah. are dry you probably want a dry lubricant or a thin or a thin or uh, thinner yeah. thin one yep whatever exactly. your preferences um but definitely you should be changing your your lubricant and do that the night before hopefully um check your brake pads right yeah you will go through them especially on rim brakes like you can run through rim brakes in one really wet ride yep um i would say for that's true for uh, disc brakes as well yeah, um, it's gnarly enough yeah yeah if it's wet even like uh when it rains on training rides and it's like just kind of um, like little gritty yeah those can really wear down your pads and also yep, your, and rotors. your rotors yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of training stuff, I would say you don't have to worry about performance as much, which is nice. You don't need to do these sort of over-the-top uh, aerodynamics things. Um, but I would say that you should have a you should have a summer wet jacket and you should have a winter wet jacket. And the most popular winter jacket is the GABA from Castelli. That's sort of like industry standard. And I know pro teams. Castelli made a joke and they had a pro edition of the GABA, which was just the GABA with a Sharpie so that the pro teams could uh, Sharpie out the logo um, because, you know, it wasn't sponsored. But basically every pro team was secretly using GABAs without and they somehow tore off the logos. Um, but that's pretty much the standard and it has a flap at the lower back mm-hmm. that sits really well to prevent any sort of like wind coming up your back. Um it's just really like really well designed and i i use that for i'm kind of warm so it says it it can go up to like 68 fahrenheit but i wouldn't use it really over 50 um and then you can have a it depends on your preference uh i i used to have a short sleeve um rain jacket that i really liked Hmm, okay um but some people prefer vests some people prefer um, long sleeve i think long sleeves a little too billowy i'm firmly in the vest camp Okay. Like, uh, like you said, like keeping the core warm, keep the core warm and dry. Like if I, you know, some of the arm warmers now have the sort of water repellent coating, like it works for a while. Obviously if it rains long enough, it's, it's going to soak through anything. Right. Yep. Um, but that's usually my go-to Of course. We're out here in sunny California where it doesn't rain a whole lot. So that tends to work. <laughs> that tends to work for me. And I'll admit to being a, a fair weather Californian. So if it's raining too hard, 
I'm, I'm probably going to be on the trainer. Yeah, I mean, everyone is so happy that it rained this winter because of, like, the drought. Um, but I was a little disappointed that um, I didn't get to have a sunny day every training ride. Didn't have uh, the, the California weather that you're paying for. Yeah, so I actually don't, I don't even have a trainer that works on my new bike. Um, so every ride is outdoors, so I'm a little bit more... Um, less spoiled maybe i could Mm -hmm. say than you but um yeah i have i had to tackle these and you know when your training plan says a four-hour endurance ride and it's 50 and raining for the whole day you better figure out what you're gonna do yeah no i think that's that's good you talk about building some mental toughness and also just being being prepared for those conditions i I think there is some practical value in in going out and doing it right your your bike rides a little bit differently on wet pavement than it does on dry pavement Mm -hmm. and you know i think the the worst honestly is not when it's actively raining like i would rather go out when it's raining and i know the whole road's wet than when it's started to dry up a little bit and i have wet pavement and dry pavement right because it's that changing that changing of traction that you have is is brutal and sometimes you know can put you in a bad place and um there's like a pretty famous clip of vincenzo nibali uh bunny hopping a like a glacial stream that you know one of those like really flat streams across the road mm-hmm. um he like bunny hopped it on a descent because he didn't want his tread to be wet for the next like mm-hmm. two corners before it would dry again um and i think he stormed down and like won the race but um it's just like important if it's important enough for a bunny for a pro to bunny hop it into a um hairpin then you know you definitely know it's significant yeah oh it, it makes a difference and you know inevitably the worst thing will happen right if you crash on a wet road at least you have something to break up the friction between you and the road inevitably in that situation you're going to slide on the dry part or on the wet part right and lose yeah. traction and then end up crashing and falling on the dry part and scraping have, up yeah, yeah have the worst the worst outcome so um i'm just thinking of what other uh rainy day stuff the other thing is um well i think you know, you said you left your your shoes uncovered, your feet uncovered um, during the race. Do you have you revised your position on that? Or are you still a an uncovered shoe type of a guy? So I own um, velo toes, mm-hmm. which are um, some some people people pronounce it velo toesy, um, but those are like a, lay. Well, you know, they're, some proprietary blend, yeah. but basically latex, a little thick um, latex. Um, shoe cover that has a, a hole in the bottom for your um, for your cleats and the problem with those though is you have you have a hole in the bottom of your shoe mm-hmm. for ventilation that you have to duct tape shut or mm-hmm. you'll start to get a little bit into your feet um, I think the big thing with me for this for that for the position that I have on doing bare like no uh, protection for your feet is that um, it's pretty hard for them not to get wet even um you know the warmers have some sort of like uh suction at the top on your ankle where it's supposed to seal to your skin you can feel like one spot unseal and you can feel the water drip down in the middle of the race um and then it's almost worse to be halfway through a race and feel your feet slowly getting wet um than it is to prepare mentally and prepare otherwise like i know they're going to be wet so let me put an extra layer on my core or let me um, embro my legs to try and keep it warm, like higher up so that my feet don't get too cold. Or sometimes um, this is kind of more frowned upon because you can get like nerve issues. But I was told that a lot of cyclocross riders just sort of accept the fate that they're, they're not going to be able to feel their feet. Um, and they just, uh, you know, let it happen. I just go with my wool socks. That's my go to if I know it's going to be cold and wet. I don't okay. know, maybe it's at this point, I think probably our technical fabric, fabrics have caught up with wool, but I think right, the, the old hypothesis was wool would do a better job of keeping you warm if it was wet than cotton. Um, it's, that may not be, mm-hmm. that may not bear itself out, but maybe it's just like, you know, outstanding superstition on my part. I'm like, Oh, it's going to be wet today. Right, let me grab the wool socks. So the big thing with wool is that it dries faster than cotton. So if you're in an in and out situation where, uh, maybe you go through some puddles or you have, you know, it's like spotty rain, you'll get back to dry a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you're in cotton, you're just done until you go home. Yep. Um, I also wonder if um, regarding the traction stuff, um, I have to think about, I've never really had issues cornering in the wet. I've been in races where people have crashed. 
Um, you have to remember that paint is going to be road paint is going to be slippery. Mm -hmm. Um, but I wonder how you can sort of gain confidence in a race, um, in terms of like we talked about last week, the first few laps are, um, let me see how I take this corner. Let me look at how other people take this corner. You almost have to do that in the wet as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can't slow down as much as you want. Sometimes the race demands that you speed up and, um, sometimes you have to take corners hard to stay in the race. So, um, I would definitely say the trick, correct me if I'm wrong, is you, you don't lean your bike too much. Well, right. So that's the, as you lean your bike, right, the surface area changes, right? Yeah. And now you're at an angle to the road. So now there's less, yeah, the way the force is going. So yeah, I think it's like staying a little bit more upright. But I think at the same time, if you get in your head too much and try to steer your bike, then you also get yourself into trouble. Yeah. Right. Like there's a sweet spot. I think you have to, practice riding in the wet a little bit to be confident in how your bike feels how it rides how it behaves because um, i think if you get if you get too stiff then you're you're in trouble too right mm -hmm. like there, there's a sweet spot between like yes i should not be as aggressive as i would on dry pavement but then like i'm also not riding on ice so i can't yeah. be like super rigid and like a, a, afraid of cornering and yeah you, you have to find that sweet spot and because if you're if you're too cautious, I think you get yourself not only like get yourself dropped off the back of the pack, but like also I think you put yourself maybe at greater risk of falling. Yeah, like keep it smooth. Um, Absolutely. And on that topic, I would say um, you normally want to keep the bike a little more upright, move your body more than move the bike. Um, and remember when you're cornering that you're pushing on your outer pedal and you're doing that to to basically your bike wants to say you're turning around a left turn mm -hmm. you the bike wants to fall on its left side mm -hmm. and so you're pushing on you're putting your weight on that outside pedal to sort of flip it back up but basically you're keeping it in this equilibrium um so in the wet though you don't have as much friction so the reason that that works is because you have enough friction you're, you're to pushing against something yeah yeah um, and you're pushing sideways almost, mm -hmm. um, depending on how far your bike leans. So if it's wet, you don't have that, that resistance and actually pushing on that outside wheel too much will actually like help your bike fall over to the left. Right. Um, and you'll slide out. Yeah. So this is a total aside, like, you know, when you're going around a corner in your car or on, and on your bike, right on the road, and there's a, a sign posted, right. that says, you know, 20 miles an hour mm -hmm. and that has to do with like the speed that the bank of the road can handle for a car in yep. slick conditions right so like just like think thinking about that right like usually like the flatter turns and the flatter and tighter it is it's a lower number and if it's banked in you know less tight then it's a it's a larger number and obviously it's like contingent on is it a highway or not right yeah um but like just think about that it, the same thing applies for your bike like you can you can do like a couple things like when you're coming to a turn your bike has a couple options it can it only has limited it only has a given amount of friction so that friction can be used to decelerate to accelerate or to turn right i mean and all those if you ask the physicist right those are all a form of acceleration yeah. <laughs> um, we just think about them differently when we talk about bike racing but like those are your three options and you have you know the the number x friction that you have when it's wet is lower so you can do less of those three things. So break before the corner and remember that if your pads, if your rims have water on them or your rotors have water on them, not going to stop quite as fast. Yeah. So squeeze a little <laughs> early to wipe the water and then, yep. you, and then do a second squeeze to, to, actually to apply break. to actually slow yourself down. And again, less friction. So it may not slow as quickly. Yep. Now, now you want to want to let off your brake in the turn as you always do. So, you, so the friction can be used in turning. And then as you come out of turn, if you want to reaccelerate, you want to be not turning anymore. You want to be going straight, straight ahead and out through the exit of that turn. So you can then use that friction to accelerate yourself back up to speed. Yep. And the, uh, on the topic of racing, I would say, um, I personally don't feel that there's ever a time to not use your race wheels. I've had teammates who, you know, oh, it's a bumpy race, like a, you know, a bad road surface or, oh, it's wet. Don't use your carbon rim brakes. Um, my personal opinion is the value you're going to get out of your carbon rim brakes, even if you have poor braking performance, will be higher than your aluminum training wheels. I guess just, I don't, I don't know. The, like, I race mountain bikes all the time now, right? So mm -hmm. 
I have disc brakes. I've had disc brakes for years. So it's like, yeah, it, I, don't, I don't really think about that that I much. haven't raced in the wet since I got my disc brake road bike. Um, but, you know, it's still not one-to-one. Um, in the wet, it's still worse on oh, um, disc brakes. For, for, I mean, that's, I mean, that's true of mountain biking too, right? Like on a dry trail, I stop fast. On a muddy trail, I stop, just not quite as fast, yeah. right? <laughs> Um, so yeah, you, there's certainly a decrease in braking performance when it's wet. I, I don't think, I think probably the question that I would have as far as road biking is like, is that, is the difference between your dry braking performance and your wet braking performance less? Right? Like I'm 80 to 90%. I'm positive that it's, it's the difference is less on yeah. a disc. So disc it, it degrade your, your braking performance degrades less with the disc brakes than it, yeah. it would. And that's the main selling point. Yeah. of the disc brakes um, that makes sense to me I mean, one is just like that rotor is not exposed to the water in the same way that a rim is yeah um and the last thing i have on this topic is um for racing in bad weather if you come in and you want to race and you come ready to fight you're gonna beat everyone else who who defeated themselves in the parking lot it's really common for people to say uh, I already paid for the race. Is might as right. might as well, well show up. Uh, and if you go in and you say, "I know people are going to be weak mentally. I know people are not going to want to be as aggressive. I'm going to go, you know, punch this race in the face." You're going to do well um, if you have that attitude. So uh, I, that's what I would encourage you to do. I, I don't consider myself a wet weather racer, but I get excited during wet weather because I I tend to do well. Um, and I think that's because I'm not afraid of it and I come in with the right attitude. That's, that's interesting. Cause I think I said this last time, um, about altitude, right? I was like, yeah, remember everybody else is racing in it too, right? Like you can't be like, Oh, well, it's wet. I don't like, well, like, look, it's wet for everybody. It's not just yeah. wet for you. So, you know, you got to go out there and realize it's, it is a level playing field. I mean, my experience is I, I always love muddy mountain bike races. Like, I, I don't know. I guess I rode well in mud, relatively speaking. I don't, I, I don't know, but I, I always like, love this. Like, oh, it's gonna, it's rain. Awesome. Let's let's do this. Let's yeah. go. Let's go race. That, you know, this is gonna be fun. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe that's just I, I can't I can't extract whether I necessarily rode better or I was just that was just like my attitude. Like I was stoked about it because I was racing and everybody else was just bummed and therefore my result was better. <laughs> um, but I always I always love that challenge. It's just a different challenge to take on and. I don't know. I think that's, that's the way I always look at it. It's like, Hey, there's a challenge of altitude. There's a challenge of wet. There's a challenge of heat. How do I cope with that? Um, and, and how do I, as you said, prepare for this race so I can cope with that challenge better than my competitors? Yeah. And it, it takes a lot of, um, preemptive creativity. That's the big, um, takeaway is, you know, hopefully you learn how to ride in the rain. Hopefully you look at the course, you look at the weather, you, you know, you find a solution that works for you. And, you know, for me, um, I also just thought of this. The the reason I have the short finger gloves is it's easier for me to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you so, keep some dexterity. Yeah. Um, and well, you know, when they're numb, <laughs> you know, that, it's not so useful. But um, when, you know, when you still have feeling, it's a lot easier to do that. But, you know, it's it's creativity, but it's also what works for you. And, and what are the things that you, you know, I struggle with eating already. So let's not hinder it more. So that, that, that's a personal thing that I have to do. Um, the, the important thing is looking in advance, thinking in advance, learning what works for you and, uh, you know, making it work for the weather, for the altitude, for whatever. Yeah. And I think the other piece, I, I, I always harp on this, right? So you guys all heard this before is reflecting on it, right? Like, well, so I went out and I did this, what worked, what didn't work. And next time I have these conditions, what am I going to do differently so I can perform better? Yeah. Well said. So I think, is that a, is that a wrap on episode 10? Yeah. Uh, unless you have something else, uh, I no. don't know, any hot takes that we can argue about for an hour or anything? Nothing, nothing brilliant from my end. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I guess we'll wrap it up here. Yeah. Well, until, until next time, uh, keep the rubber side down and have fun out there. Yep. See ya.